She was attacked and stabbed many times in a life and death battle during a routine call for service and is left with life-changing injuries. And she's coming up on the Law Enforcement Today show. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Calling us from the Hartford, Connecticut area. Joining us on the phone, Jill Kittick. Jill, thanks so much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I've heard a lot about you. And I'll be honest, I want people to, to understand, we're going to have a conversation about some very upsetting things. I don't want anyone to think this is easy for me. Uh, even after years of police work and years of being retired and years now doing a Law Enforcement Today show, it's very upsetting when I have to have conversations with officers who were severely injured in the line of duty. And uh, Jill's case certainly falls into that category. So uh, if I stumble a little bit, that's because it, it gets emotional. Uh, and I do appreciate you just coming on the show to talk about this, Jill. It's very much appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. My wife, Stephanie, is from Avon, Connecticut. She just returned from a trip there to see family members. I know the area uh, where Jill worked. It's a beautiful part of the United States. Uh, some wonderful people there. I always say this. I don't know how people can afford to live in Connecticut. I'll just say that. <laughs> Tax-wise. It's a little, yeah, it's a little overpriced. Housing-wise, everything else, it's, it's craziness. And uh, the winters, that's the other thing I, I couldn't do. Summertime, I could be up there all day. It'd be wonderful. We're going to talk about your career. You're currently a police officer in the Hartford Connecticut Police Department, but you're on what we call medical leave from a line of duty injury and be going through retirement process. Is that a, a good way of explaining it? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. I'm home trying to recover. I try to go back to work. It's just not really working. I have to... One of those situations you have to accept your your new reality, or as we said, the new normal. There's yeah, life yeah. before the incident, and there's life after the incident. And no matter how much we'd like, I, I've talked to you know combat veterans. I've talked to lots of law enforcement officers, firefighters, EMTs, first responders that have gone through really bad things, physically, mentally, emotionally, all in all the above, and they say. I stopped giving up the emotional effort of trying to go back the way things were before because I can't do that. Correct. Yes. So your life changed dramatically. Before we go into details of that, uh, a brief overview, a bird's eye view of your law enforcement career, start to finish. Okay. Well, I start, I've been on for 12 and a half years and I've been in patrol my entire career, but most recently I became a drug recognition expert and I was very proud of myself getting into that and it was I graduated from that class or got my certification three weeks before my incident um, so I was truly at the peak of my career nowhere to go but up so for me to uh, be in this situation now is a bit heartbreaking because now I there's I can't go back to who I was and I can't go do what I was really passionate about doing mm-hmm. um, I still love the job but now it's time to 
to move on a little bit earlier than what my retirement date was supposed to be. How old were you when you started in the police department? I was 22 years old. Okay, so I know it's a, a big no-no to ask women their age. So you did 12 years. And by the way, 12 years in law enforcement is a very long time. And that's when it's around seven, eight years on average that officers become very experienced and very, very good and proficient at what they do. And they're, they start to become a valuable resource in community for training the new officers because that's how we learn. So when an officer's career is cut short in their prime or at the peak of their career, like you say yours was, it's a devastating loss to the agency, the individual officer, your family, and the community. Absolutely. And I think that one of the hardest things in my situation now is the emotional aspect of all my coworkers informing me of what an asset I have become prior to this incident and their efforts to try to keep me working within the police department, but all of us having to understand that some people get hurt and can't come back and we all just have to recognize that and take care of each other. But you did try to come back. I did for about nine weeks. Um, I tried to work half days. I got up to five hours a day and I was not at all aware of the emotional stress, the physical toll that it would take on me. I thought I was invincible, Mm -hmm. but I clearly was not. And it got to the point that even my coworkers that I saw every day were aware that it wasn't working and we all were honest with each other and collectively decided that it was time for me to go back out and try to heal more and move on. I have to give you some uh, admiration or applause for making that decision. I, I remember my own case when you know, I was hurt in, in what seemed like a routine stolen auto case, uh, but the guy who was an unarmed man wound up trying to shoot me with my service revolver. That's how long ago it was. Uh, while still in my hand, and, and the forces struggle. At first, it felt like a, a sprained wrist, and then I wound up having more and more problems and uh, was out on medical leave, had multiple surgeries, two fusions, steel plates and screws and everything else. Uh, fortunately, he survived, I survived. But when my career was over, it was done. It was like I didn't, I didn't even get to see them until we had a retirement ceremony later on down the road. Yeah, that's that's something I'm, I'm grateful that my doctor's let me figure it out for myself. I do believe that neither one of the two doctors that are the ones that would clear me or not, I don't believe that they would have ever cleared me to go back, but they needed me to go figure that out for myself. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity, even though I was just going to the department and I was working inside and I wasn't in uniform. It was enough for me to to not have that feeling like, I, I don't, what if I tried to go back? I don't have to deal with that the rest of my life you were able to answer those questions for yourself yes and it's a powerful lesson because it's a lot of times there's the what ifs i and it could have should have would and i know we all do that in particular when it involves incidents that involved uh, traumatic injuries which we'll talk about yours in a moment when i say the traumatic injuries uh jill's were devastating Uh, as a horrific attack we will talk about the details of that in just a few moments before returning to our conversation with officer jill kittick i want to play actual police audio from the hartford police department this is edited for time now bear in mind officer jill kittick is unit number 12 
Twelve. Thirty foot final hold. Start over to where twelve is. Five Constitution Plaza in the lobby. Twelve, you all set? Eleven and twelve. Alright, ten zero guys. Five Constitution Plaza, ninth nice floor. Ten ten. Ten ten and root. Yeah, right, please. EMS and root. Anybody else coming? Bring a med bag. Bring a med bag. Alright, guys, come and bring a med bag. We need a. Uh... Boss EMS here, ASAP. We need, we need, we need to alert Hartford Hospital. We've got an officer stabbed in the throat. Alright? Have a meet us in an emergency room. ASAP, we're going to be escorting. Great, clear all the intersections. Hey, clear our road, clear the path all the way to Hartford Hospital right now, ASAP. Alright, they're leaving, clear the intersections. That's edited portions of the actual police audio of the day, the incident, where Officer Jill Kiddick was severely injured. I did read online a little bit about your incident, and I thought I read in there that you were a newlywed just shortly before this attack occurred. Yeah, my husband now, I got Mother's Day off. Mother's Day was the Sunday before my incident, um, and he asked my dad if he could marry me. And it all, all of a sudden was like the shortest, happiest time of our lives. The one year anniversary of all of this happening in May, getting married and surviving death is going to be one big celebration for everybody. But life, you don't know what's going to happen. But I'm so grateful that if I had not made it, there was that moment that my father and my husband had together and my family um, as a memory but now it's turned into, it's made everything that much better. We're going to take a short break. We are talking with Jill Kindig. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We will be right back. Be sure to look for the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show all over social media. We're on Facebook. Look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On MeWe.com, look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On Twitter, follow LET Radio Show PO1. On Instagram, follow LET Radio Show Podcast. And on Gab.com, search for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Again, our website is LETRadioShow.com. Hope to see you online soon. I'm John J. Welly. Joining us on the phone, Jill Kiddick. I've said her last name incorrectly at the break. It's K-I-D-I-K. Is that correct? You know, in law enforcement, we wound up getting nicknames from the people we work with in the community. And I was called many different things. Most of them were good. I was called the Bigfoot because I wear a size 13 shoe. I was called Squirt because I was a big guy. And there was a time I was called Deep Throat because of my voice. And uh, you had a particular nickname that I thought was just wonderful. What was that? Uh, in the north end of Hartford, where I worked essentially for a decade, no one could say Kiddick. So it became Officer Kitty and then turned into Officer Kitty Cat. That's no such one, a great name. Yeah. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I, I loved about law enforcement is the unusual connection you make with people you see and work with every day in the community. Yes. 
and I, I know the news media loves to portray it as very hostile, very aggressive, and 99.9% of the time, uh, 99.9% of the people, even when they're criminals, it's not a bad, hostile experience. Is that correct? Yeah, it's not. I think that nobody wants to be told what to do. No, Everybody wants to police their own lives. And when there's a stranger in uniform coming into their house, it's anyone's going to be uncomfortable or upset. It doesn't matter how supportive you are of law enforcement or not. There's that feeling of violation. I think that for me, it was really important over the years for people to realize that if I'm the one that shows up, they know that I don't want to arrest anybody or take anybody away from their home. I want to come in and resolve this issue and never see them again for the same thing. And I think that that earned me some respect. And I always had the reputation of being fair. I'd try not to arrest you if I, unless you gave me no choice or it was a serious incident, but I treat you fairly as long as you didn't threaten me physically. If you threatened me physically, it was, it was a different story. Uh, yeah. But most people don't do that. And, and respect in the home was important. We were always drilled into our heads by the people that trained us. Uh, a lot of Vietnam veterans and Korean War veterans were commanders, and they drilled in our heads about treat everyone with respect until they change the tone of the conversation and then you don't back down. But particularly in their home, if you got called their home, you weren't disrespectful ever. Yes, yeah, and I think that, you know, starting off at 22, I was young and didn't know really what I was doing and you really have to, sometimes it's hard, but you learn over time that being a wolf walking in doesn't really help too much. No. You really just have to, even if you don't understand what's going on, you just kind of have to fake it until you resolve the issue that you're there for. Right. And I read somewhere that you had, was it were you de-escalation or crisis intervention certified, something along those terms, too? Yeah, we have a crisis intervention team for Harvard Police and throughout the state of Connecticut, which is a week-long class, and you spend time truly embodying different disabilities and mental handicaps. You, know, you listen to, you walk around one of our Rensselaer Field, our Yukon's playing field, football field, with headphones on of someone screaming and swearing at you to mimic that of what it's like to be schizophrenic. And you do all those things. You walk into a house and you're not trying to force somebody to be your normal. You can understand their normal. Mm-hmm. That was all things that we, we learned on the job. And I, I don't think we had the terminology they use nowadays. But all the experience you had, all the training you had, all the time on the street you had, all that pretty much didn't matter when you handled one certain call. No. And that was, what date was that that occurred? May 17th of 2018. Uh, What happened that day? You you received a call for service? No, I wanted to have my breakfast. I had my husband made me breakfast, as he always does, and I had it in my lunch bag. And I saw that there was a call holding for a little landlord-tenant issue that we deal with on a routine basis throughout the city. I knew I would get sent to it because the area car was on a uh, motor vehicle crash at the time. So I offered to go take the call, thinking it would be all of five minutes of my life. And it turned into the rest of my life. And actually, without sounding dramatic, it turned into an absolute battle for your life. Yeah, yes. that It was completely, and I hate to use the term you know, complacent or routine, but that's what it felt like that's what it should have been and i had no idea 
that I was dealing with someone that was ready to explode the way that they did on me. And this person was uh, what they describe as an emotionally disturbed person? That's what they're saying, that there's a mental health history. I know that she wasn't on medication or receiving any services for mental health, emotional health in the last couple of years. None of that was informed to me prior to me arriving. If I had known that, I never would have gone to that call by myself. Right. But no one informed me of that. But I could see that she was upset, and I don't particularly care to leave people or walk away if I can see that they need somebody. And that's what I felt with her. And it turned into an absolute nightmare. Basically, and this is paraphrasing from the article I saw, uh, you wound up wanting to get her some help. Uh, and one of the things that we were taught to do, especially when someone seemed to be disturbed, and I, I use that term as a general description for people who, who aren't in law enforcement, and that doesn't mean necessarily mental issues or, or intoxicated or drug issues or anything else, but it seems like they could be volatile, that we would cuff them for their safety and ours. Um, and is that what you attempted to do? No, I not initially. I just wanted to have a talk with her. I could tell, you can tell when you're talking to somebody in their eyes, their eyes tell you their whole life story. Yep. And there was something she couldn't verbalize with her emotions. So I asked her if she wanted to go talk to somebody. She wanted to put her shoes and her jacket on. And she said yes. And she put her shoes and her jacket on. And I asked for her ID. And she said that she didn't have it. And so I asked her a couple different ways because I saw a pile of stuff in her room, um, a, a pile of paperwork. And I asked, was she sure that she didn't have it or she just didn't have it for me? And her response made me realize she just didn't want me to have it. And at that point, I knew something was not right. And I had already called for an ambulance to take her to the hospital. I already called for a backup officer at this point, just as we're trained to do. And she, I tried to handcuff her and she looked at me in a way that I knew it wasn't gonna end well. So I took my handcuffs out, she ripped them off, and the fight for my life began. And you're a very physically fit person. People have an image, uh, there's a, a bad stereotype with law enforcement, and this was true back in the 80s when I was on a job, in the 90s, that people view female officers as being soft and not physically fit and, and not able to handle themselves in a, in a violent confrontation. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. From what I've read about you, you've been very physically active and trained rigorously for a long time. Yeah, after my first foot chase I had, on the job and realized I was horrible at running in uniform with a belt on. I got even more into working out, realizing I couldn't keep up with everybody because running <laughs> and fighting for your life with all that gear on your waist in the Kevlar vest is a whole different ball game when your adrenaline's going. And I, for the last few years, have been into CrossFit and running, and I was proud of myself to be someone that most of the guys in the department would choose to have as their backup officer. And I understand exactly what you're saying when you say there, there are people that, to this day, when I say if I had to go through a door and, and possibly have a bad situation on the other side, there are people that I would love to have with me. And, and some of them were female, some of them were male, and some of the people I did not want with me were, were male. And some of them were big, muscular guys. They just were 
not the people I wanted to have back me up in a bad, bad situation. We're getting close on time here. Before we get a break, I just want to let people know when we return, we're going to talk about the violent attack uh, that left Jill with severe life-changing injuries. When you read in the paper, you see in the news that officers' injuries are not life-threatening does not mean that they are not life-changing. And hers certainly are life-changing. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Have I got a deal for you? No, I'm not trying to sell you a bridge or swampland. Enter contests for your chance to win great prizes by subscribing to the Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Officer Jill Kittick uh, on the Law Enforcement Today show. Uh, Still a police officer going through medical leave, as we used to call it, and preparation for retirement from uh, the Hartford Connecticut Police Department. And before I go further, thank you for your service, for what you did for community and uh, for for your fellow officers as well. Mm-hmm. I don't say that enough. Uh, and I've gotten better when people thanking me. Funny thing is people thank me more now than I'm retired and I never, every day when I was on the job. So uh, I know we don't <laughs> hear that as often as we should. And, and I need, I need for one, need to get better at saying it. So we're going to go backtrack. You got a call basically for a tenant-landlord dispute. A woman there becomes uncooperative and I'm, I'm paraphrasing generalizing and somewhere in this conversation you realize you look in her eyes and you can tell something's not right and you pulled out your handcuffs what happened next she had tore out with her nails my tear duct of my left eye and we began fighting on the ground and she had grabbed me by my hair and it's a funny feeling. I wish I had had a knife in my pocket, and I didn't have one that day, and I just wanted to cut my hair off. I needed to get away from her. It was an overwhelming feeling to run away from her, and she had dragged me by the bun of my hair to the kitchen, and it's a studio. You're always taught, stay out of the kitchen, stay out of the kitchen. Absolutely. Knives but, galore in the kitchen. That's a bad yeah, spot. Knives, yeah. pots, pans, skillets, all those things are weapons. Correct, but her door was in the kitchen, so that was the only way in and out. And she had, while holding me, had gone through a drawer, and you know, spatulas came out, this, that, and then all of a sudden, a knife, like a, a butcher knife of sorts. And I thought, I don't understand what's going. I don't. Why is this happening? She let go at that point, and I ran for the door, and I fell to the ground. I couldn't remember why, and she had taken a skillet of sorts and bashed me over the head and knocked me unconscious to keep me from leaving. And at that point, I had gotten stabbed in the back of my throat, my shoulder, and I was able to click the mic on my radio enough that my sergeant knew something was wrong and he immediately told people to head there. I think it took two seconds for him to figure out that I wasn't okay. And at that point, I finally got up and ran in the hallway and fell over some Poland spring bottles that she had piled up outside her door. And then she climbed on top of me and continued to stab me in my hands, my arms, and three right straight through my trachea. 
And I, the whole time, just thought my mom was going to be really mad. This is not what I wanted to have happen today. I still have someone to go home to. I haven't had a child yet. All these things go through your head. And then suddenly she was lifted off of me. And it was by two maintenance guys. And they essentially saved my life. I, for one, thank them very much for doing that. It's amazing how often people will assist uh, officers in trouble. Uh, They've done it for me. Uh, I do it for others when I see it inside the road. And uh, those people probably saved your life. Oh, yes, absolutely. If they hadn't come, I I don't know. I don't want to know what would happen. I'm grateful I don't have to know. How many times were you stabbed? I was stabbed, oh, man, one, two, three, four, five, six, six to seven times. I can't stomach that. I'll be honest with you. There's something I learned a long time ago. I don't know why, and I've told other people this. I'd rather face down someone in a gunfight than be attacked by someone with a knife, especially someone who's proficient at it. They don't have to be trained, but someone who's crazy with a knife is as dangerous as someone who's a a well-versed, well-trained, experienced knife fighter. And that, that thought just frightens me. Yeah, it's a very, it's a creepy feeling because it's very personal. It's different than a gunfight in that you really have, I mean, you can shoot a gun and that bullet does the job in somebody's head that's shooting, but a knife, your hand is doing the job. So to be that close and intimate with someone that's truly trying to kill you, it is a very surreal experience. Did a point come in your mind where you realize that this person is trying to kill me? I knew... That I, it's funny because I knew I was being stabbed. I knew I was dying. I knew I was bleeding out. But I was just so mad that my I'm OCD and my day has to go the way I want it to. And I just was stuck in like I have to get to the hospital and get taken care of so I can go on with my day. It was a very I can't explain it. I explained to other people that, oh, you're in denial or whatever. Whatever I had to be in, my brain protected me. And they'll probably help so you can't. survive. And by the way, maybe that's a Connecticut thing because that sounds just like my wife. <laughs> she, she's very OCD and she's got to be in control of everything. And in some ways, I am too. And I, I revert back to a specific incident where I got retired, that unarmed man. And I remember there was like a flip of a switch, and it's hard to describe, but it wasn't really like a cognizant thought, because there's not enough time to really develop deep thoughts. But something came to my mind that this guy is trying to kill me, and that my mind was, I'm going to die, but it's not gonna be tonight, it's not gonna be because of you. Correct. And yes, I was gonna do- exactly, I thought, I'm, you're, you're not doing this to me today, because I'm exactly. not done yet. And I, the fight, and you know what it was replaced by? And you said really something very important. It was, I, I guess the word I can best describe it is a primordial or primitive or a deep down genetic anger and rage that came out of me that I couldn't and still can't explain. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it, you just, that fight that you keep fighting. And I think if I had to, as a rationally minded person now, I think, how did I get through that? But it's all mental. And it's, again, yes, my physical, the way I ate, the way it worked out, but it's also who you are mentally and emotionally. And I believe that's where, the, and I'm, I know you've heard this, uh, every police training I've ever been in from day one in the academy, yearly in service, they always s- stress to us, 
no matter how bad the situation, if you are losing, if you are in a fight with a person who's an MMA fighter and they are just giving it to you, you cannot give up. You cannot mentally give up. You got to stay in a fight. Absolutely. And there's times where I'm out for a run for three miles and I think I can't do this. But then, you know, I survived much worse. Yeah, you've been through it. Get through anything. So you were stabbed multiple times. And basically, you were in and out of consciousness, but somehow you managed to click the mic that you needed help. Yes. And were you fully conscious, or were you in and out of it at that point? I remember, there's a lot of things I don't remember seeing at some point, because I had lost so much blood and that trauma to my head. And that, again, was almost like a godsend. Like, if I wasn't religious... I became religious for all the things that my body protected me from feeling and seeing. Um, but I was, I blacked out once it stopped. And once I knew that one of the cadets from the police department and one of my classmates had arrived, then I, I let go. And I don't remember the elevator ride down. I don't remember half of the ambulance ride. There's just little things. I remember hearing a nurse's voice that I remember and thought, thank God I'm at Hartford Hospital. And I can only imagine the relief kind of set in. You go from all of a sudden being a routine call for service, a typical landlord-tenant dispute, to a life-or-death battle where someone's trying to kill you, to being literally at death's door. Now you're being transported to the hospital, and the outcome of your life is in someone else's hands. Yeah, that's that's a crazy feeling that you don't have. I don't like that I don't have control over what's happening to my body. So to give that up to somebody else to fix me, even though you can't have any control, is mentally exhausting. But that connection that we as officers have with our medical staff was a huge relief for me. I'm so glad that you, A, survived. And uh, I know it sounds corny to say that, but it's one of those things where there's no right words. And this is something I still struggle with. And I always say this to people like who've lost spouses in the line of duty, that. Oftentimes, I want to say something, but I'm afraid I'll say the wrong thing. And that's kind of what we're bordering on right now. We're going to take a short break. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We'll be right back. If you're on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app, be sure to look for me and follow me. My name's John, the letter J, Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y. You can also search for at L-E-T Radio Show. That's John J. Wiley, W-I-L-E-Y, at L-E-T Radio Show on the Clubhouse drop-in audio chat app. Back to the Law Enforcement Today Show. I'm joined by special guest Jill Kittick, Hartford, Connecticut police officer. Jill, thanks for joining us on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Welcome. And I'll paraphrase and shorten this up. You were attacked and brutally stabbed multiple times by someone you would not expect in a call you wouldn't expect to happen. You go from, I'm going to eat breakfast to, I'm going to go handle this call real quick. It'll be five minutes of my life and I'll go back and I'll have breakfast and then start my day. Newlywed, got life the way you want it. You're doing great in your career. And then all of a sudden, this vicious attack occurs. And you said she began attacking you in a kitchen and stabbed you with a kitchen knife, basically, right? Yes. Yep. Not some highfalutin, fancy fighting knives of people that seem to go, uh, you know, that's a threat because it looks threatening. No, this is a kitchen carving knife, basically. Yeah, that you can get at any local store. 
and she stabbed you in the back of the the, the neck and the shoulders, the hand, and uh, the the most serious life threatening injury, in addition to life loss of blood, was the one involving your neck and throat. Correct? Yes. Yeah. So she stabbed me through the back of the neck on the right side, and then she split my trachea in half. Slit your trachea in half. Basically, slit your throat. Yes. Yeah. And that's most. I'm no doctor. But quite often what happens is people wind up bleeding to death and drowning from the blood entering their lungs. Absolutely. It took me weeks to get all the, to cough all the blood out of my lungs. I can't even begin to imagine how, and I've seen these. I, I remember calls for service on Thanksgiving. We get there and the man, his throat is wide open because he got cut and they had a family fight over who's going to lead the family prayers at Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. And it's like they're drinking, whatever it might be, and next thing you know, someone's on the verge of dying. And it's just so horrific to look at this. I can't yeah, imagine, A, your backup officers, what, what they went through. And it wasn't just one or two. I mean, they're essentially the entire patrol and traffic divisions responded because we all know what it sounds like when individual officers call for help and yeah. it's just someone that sounds more excited than they are and you understand the personality but i don't call for help or scream on the radio so when that came over everyone showed up and saw it and when they got there did they wait for the ambulance crew or they immediately throw you in a squad car and and start moving towards the hospital no they all showed up the ambulance had already been there because i'd already called them before the fight had even started and i think the ambulance crew was the most shocked as they were expecting just to transport her to get some help with a social worker and then i come out of the building can we describe what your state was were you walking or were you like in a gurney or people carrying you well i i was walking and i remember someone lifting my feet and i thought thank god like i can't walk anymore apparently that was not my reaction i started kicking and trying to yell because the blood was going down to my lungs and i was drowning Oh, so they had you in the wrong direction. Yeah, so then they put me back down, and then I got into the ambulance, and I remember at one point throwing blood, or I thought I coughed blood, but I guess I was throwing it everywhere because they kept trying to lay me down, and my coworker said, no, she has to sit up because, again, I started to drown on my blood again. This, it's so hard to hear the details of this, and, you know, I've never met you. I've only seen a photo. I've seen photos of you in uniform before the incident, and you, you look like, I'm not saying this as uh, an insult, but you look like every other police officer I've ever known. The, uh, someone out there doing a good job, and then I've seen photos of you afterwards, and every photo I've seen, you're wearing a bandana or a scarf around your neck. Is that because of the scars? Yeah, so I have to wear like the, the fishing neck guards you would get at REI or whatever store because the scars go all the way across my throat and up behind my ear. And I had to, to <clears throat> there's many pictures of me with that on because I still had a trach in. Uh, I no longer have a, a trach in my throat, but I had to block the sun from touching my scars because you can't let them have any burning or sun shine on them for at least a year to let it heal properly. How would you describe your physical condition now? Or what would the doctors say? Oh, well, 
I think from day one, I was getting yelled at by the at-home nurses for carrying the laundry up the stairs. You can't, I'm not somebody, I'm not going to stop. She was very angry, but I, people have learned, I got to keep going. So I can work out. I can't do CrossFit. I don't know that I'll ever be able to do CrossFit again, just because of the injury to my, the right side of my throat is essentially paralyzed. Um, and I have difficulty swallowing, breathing, and eating is an issue. But I would say that I physically am in the best shape I can be. I'll never be like I was before, right. and that kind of me off. But I can't complain. I can I can go out and go for a run at a slower pace, but I can still go out and do it. And I can lift weights. I just have to be a little bit slower, a little more careful. And how would you describe your mental and emotional state afterwards? I think that I... And now, as, as police officers, especially as a female officer who's in a city, you have to shut your emotions off. Mm-hmm. And I think I did that for almost 13 years. And now I have to be okay with the fact that I have emotions, and I sometimes will just cry, or I'll just be mad. But at the same time, I'm still strong. It doesn't bother me to be in the courtroom with the woman that stabbed me. She's in cuffs and everything's good, but... I want to make sure that the right things happen with her. And I think that's the only thing that caused me frustration is the rights that she has and that I'm still at home struggling and I can't go back to my job, but I have all this support and I still have my life and I can still use my arms and my legs and I can still talk. There's something so I have to be said for all that. Yeah. There's a lot to be said about that, but I, I also found myself being uh, angry for what a lot of people would think would be no reason at all, emotional, and my incidents were many, many years ago. It's much better than it used to be. And I always tell people that for someone who's struggling after a violent incident like this, you gotta stay in the fight, it gets better. You can't give up, you've got to stay in there. And my life's not not dominated by these mental and emotional issues, but they still are there. And I have to recognize that that's part of my limitations. Like you mentioned, I have physical limitations after the attack, and you've gotten better at those. You're learning those. Do you find you have to do the same with mental and emotional as well? Yeah, I think I have to accept that the old Jill is gone and that there's a new one, and this one has feelings. <laughs> so The good news is you have feelings. The bad news is sometimes <laughs> you have feelings, right? Yeah, like I don't, I'll cry in the middle of a conversation. So it's not like this isn't me, but it's who I am now. I, I, it's it's hard, but I can't. I have a fantastic fantastic therapist who has done EMDR therapy with me, and I she forces me to feel, and that's what I need. It's the best thing. When you say EMDR, been a lot of questions about that, and people want to know basically what is it, what happens. Well, for me, you know, it's a, it's a sensory therapy where sometimes when you're thinking about something horrible that's happened, you have to think about what makes you happy at the same time, like going to the beach or shopping at TJ Maxx. Like, that's, those are my two things. And so immediately when I start getting into something serious with her, um, I have the hand sensory, and there's a, a, a pattern of vibration in your hand that just reminds you of the beach while you're talking about, I don't know, getting stabbed in the throat, and you realize, okay, it's over. And now I can just go to the beach and be happy. 
I don't know that it works for everybody. I don't know. And I definitely thought, I'm just going to go back to work and I'll be fine. And she said, okay, whatever you think. And I worked with the therapy and it has worked for me. I don't have nightmares. I can call her if I need help and I can deal with my emotions. I can verbalize them, which I didn't think I'd be able to. It's helped me tremendously. Jill, I'm so glad you came on the show. We definitely have to have you back again in the future. Thanks so very much for sharing your story. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.